Ladies, good morning. We are going to, okay, I'm going to be starting actually with a sort of tangential topic, just going to be spending five minutes on this idea, um, but we're going to be moving into the Israel's experience in the desert, which is what we're going to be talking about today, and I think that a lot of the um, subjects that we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks really rests upon an understanding of what we're going to be talking about in this introduction for the next five minutes. Um, now, just also a little, um, I'm not going to be, we're not going to be discussing the whole episode of the Makot and the Tziat Mitzrayim itself per se, because for some of you it's going to be repetitive because I did it I think a couple of years back. We talked about the distinction between nature and miracle and what it really was all about and what God was trying to prove through Yitzhak Mitzrayim and sort of recalibrate Israel's understanding of God. So I'm not going to be repeating that. If anyone wants after class, feel free. Um, I can sort of give you a quick lowdown. But I wanted to introduce something that I think is important um, in terms of how we interact with the universe and how we understand how people in the Tanakh and the original audience of Tanakh were interacting with the universe. So we, everyone in this room is basically post-scientific man, okay, or woman, post-scientific person. Um, and we're going to be distinguishing ourselves for a couple of minutes and how we understand and interact with the universe from ancient men. There's a great book, which we're going to be reading very quickly uh, in a minute, the, an excerpt from this book, The Intellectual Adventure of Ancient Man. Um, and it's really, really a fascinating book. It takes three different scholars. Each one of them talks, deals with their own area of expertise, ancient Egypt, ancient Mesopotamia, and ancient Israel. And what they talk about is sort of the way in which the, the cognitive developments, basically, between how the ancients in each one of those societies interacted with the universe, thought about government, thought about land, versus how man began to conceive of all of those topics post really the Greek introduction to a new way of thinking. And then, of course, it goes without saying, the scientific revolution. Um, so we're going to have to now rewind and go back for a second. The way that we interact with the universe and the way that we think of the universe is very, very different than the way majority of human history thought about the universe until really around the 1700s. When we interact with the universe, when we say a post-scientific revolution, what does that mean? What is that? When we ask questions, when we think about the universe, how do we think about the universe? How do we interact with the universe? How do we see ourselves vis-a-vis -vis the world around us? What's the number one thing that science really introduced to our way of thinking, if you think about it. You can change things. Um, okay, so that's an outgrowth of, right? Science basically comes up with rules. Science comes up, science basically says, the world around me is, for the, right, for lack of a better term, a complicated machine, and I'm going to interact with the world around me as a complicated machine. I'm going to try to figure out how the parts fit together. I'm gonna to try to understand things like cause and effect, and if I'm able to successfully do that, then, like Fatya said, what am I going to be able to then change, do? Change. Control, alter, manipulate, and again, it's a false sense of control. I think most of us would admit that, right? But to a degree, to control the physical world around me. Okay? That's very, very different than ancient man. How did ancient man interact with the universe? Okay, so fate, um, what would what it meaning expands on that? What does that mean? Okay, so we don't have control. I would say it's more, I think you're right, but I think there's something else. It does control. Okay, so things, there are reactions, things are animate. If a, water, if a river doesn't rise, 
So post-scientific people are going to try to explain that maybe there was a lack of rainfall, maybe there are different reasons why the river didn't rise that year. We're going to have all sorts of scientific phenomena to back up why a river didn't rise. Or if there's a massive flood and a tsunami, then I'm going to chalk it up to the tectonic plates under the ocean's floor starting to shift and a mine, you know, an earthquake is going to affect. That's not ancient man. If a river doesn't rise, and therefore the land around it, for example, I'm focusing, let's say, for example, on Egypt, is not fertile, what does that mean <coughs> to ancient man? God is angry. Correct. That the gods that are controlling that river are angry. That ancient man, there's an interaction between man and the universe. It's not man as the center of the universe controlling the world in which he lives or manipulating the world in which he lives for his own good. It's man constantly interacting with other forces, be it deities, be it forces of nature, right? We don't want to sort of oversimplify or whittle it down to one way of thinking. But you're constantly interacting with other forces. We sometimes say, oh, isn't that funny how ancient man used to sort of utilize anthropomorphic terms to speak about nature. They would speak about nature in animated terms. They're not using anthropomorphic terms. They actually couldn't conceive of an inanimate universe. Okay, it's very, very different, and we have to be careful not to sort of superimpose our modern way of thinking and then assume they were anthropomorphizing things. They were not. They understood everything around them as being um, sort of interactive with them forces. I'm going to read to you, because I, I think they do a really, really good job of explaining this. I'm going to read to you the, um, the intro I have here. And again, we're not going to be addressing this directly today, um, but it's going to be very important because we're going to be moving on in the next couple of classes, and the concept of cause and effect is going to be important, and causality, and why things happen is going to come into play. So we're just going to have to remember to sort of shift our, um, I guess, sort of vantage point. So look inside source one. It says, we shall find that if we attempt to define the structure of mythopoetic thought and compare it that of modern, that is scientific thought, the differences will prove to be due rather to emotional attitude and intention than to a so-called pre-logical mentality. The basic distinction of modern thought is that between subjective and objective, right? I am the subject in modern terms, and the world around me is object, and I act upon those things. On this distinction, scientific thought has based a critical and analytical procedure by which it progressively reduces the individual phenomena to typical events subject to universal laws. A tsunami in some island somewhere is nothing to do with the people on the island behaving in any given way. It's a natural phenomena we broadly call hurricanes or tsunamis or whatever the case may be. Okay? And in doing that, we also depersonalize the experience. Thus, it creates, now this is another element which I think is also really, really important. This was very important, particularly, for example, in Egypt during the period of the Makot. Okay? Thus, it creates an increasingly wide gulf between our perceptions of the phenomena and the conceptions by which we make them comprehensible. So he's going to explain what that means. We see the sun rise and set, but we think of the earth as moving around the sun. Right? Meaning, I experience one thing, but I know because I've been, right, or I, I'm speaking globally, right, we have been to outer space. We have satellites that can see the Earth from a more bird's eye view. We're not only looking up and we don't only, even though we experience the sun as rising and setting, we know that that's not what's actually happening. And so we are almost 
divorced from to a degree, really perceiving things through the vantage point of humanity, right? Go back to Breshit, by the way, because I mean, it's, it's sort of a separate point also, but Breshit speaks through the perception of humanity, right? When it talks about things like the waters above and the waters below and the Me'orot HaGdolim and HaKtanim, it's not speaking objective scientific truths. It's speaking about how humanity perceives the world around us and how we understand God's role in creating it. We see colors, he goes on, but we describe them as wavelengths, right? We dream of a dead relative, but we think of that distinct vision as a product of our own subconscious minds. Even if we individually are unable to prove these almost unbelievable scientific views to be true, we accept them because we know that they can be proved to possess a greater degree of objectivity than our sense impressions, right? I have no idea what an actual molecule is, but I know that things are made up of molecules, so I talk in scientific terminology, even though I don't actually understand or perceive, or can I fully really prove that any of that exists. We buy into the scientific system. In the immediacy of primitive experience, however, there is no room for such critical resolution of perceptions. Primitive man, cannot withdraw from the presence of the phenomena because they reveal themselves to him in the manner we have described. Hence, the distinction between subjective and objective knowledge is meaningless to him, okay? No one would say to ancient man, oh, that doesn't really work, it's just placebo effect. No such thing, okay? <laughs> meaningless also is our contrast between reality and appearance. Whatever is capable of affecting mind, feeling, or will has thereby established its undoubted reality. There is, for instance, no reason why dreams should be considered less real than impressions received while one is awake, right? I remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about Yosef. The dream was more important than what people thought while they were awake. On the contrary, dreams often affect one so much more than the humdrum of events of the daily life. They appear to be more and not less significant than the usual perceptions, okay? And it goes without saying, by the way, right, that we don't have to sort of read too much into this, and I mentioned that we're not going to be talking about Yitzhi time, but it goes without saying that Yitzhiat Mitzrayim was basically, right, globally doing what? What was Hashem doing through the Makot, through the distinction between the land where the Bnei Yisrael lived and the land where the Egyptians lived? What was Hashem doing throughout all those months leading up to him taking us out of the land of Egypt? Proving himself. Proving what? He's superior. He's superior. Okay, that God is in control of all of those manifestations in nature. That nature is does not have its own volition. God is actually in control of all of those natural events that we see around us. And in doing so, God was proving, right? Ki in kamoni bechol haaretz. God was proving himself. It's not about him being stronger than the other gods. It's about God being completely and utterly in control of all of the natural phenomena that we experience. Okay, And so it's almost sort of decreasing or depleting the, um, the independent powers of all of those forces of nature. Okay, That's really important. And again, I mentioned we're not going to be addressing it directly today, but it's going to come into play as we move on in the coming weeks. So just file that away in the back of your heads for a minute. Yeah. I didn't understand because I thought that all the ancient peoples wouldn't have supposed that nature, forces of nature, have any independent power, independent of any God. Right, but now God, our Hashem, yeah. is in control of all of them. But how does that not show that? Ra, let's say Ra, the sun god. They would see it rise and right. set everything. So you said that, that God was not 
It wasn't to prove that our God was the greatest God, but how did it not prove that? How, no, it was. It was. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Super, absolute supremacy Sorry. over. And by the way, again, this is the part where I'm not going to sort of go back because we did do it, right? But we went through the different makot and showed how each God or each belief system in ancient Egypt, Ra, the sun god who rose every morning and set every night, and they were worried every night that it was the death of Ra. The nighttime was a very. So God makes, you know, God is in control of dark and light. God is in control of the overflow of the Nile and whether or not. It, it was all about his supremacy over all of those other forces. And again, I could, we, can, we could sort of switch back and forth between the word gods and forces. It doesn't matter. Those are already semantic games, right? But our Hashem is the most, we'll say, powerful force in the world and has control over any of those other forces, okay? Okay, file that away. Now, let's move on to today's topic. I'm going to put two names up on the board because you guys are going to start keeping a list of all the anthropologists you're meeting this semester. <laughs> We have two new ones. Can you see the green? No. No. <laughs> black or red is interesting. Black or red. Black. Not black. Okay. And we have Van And we have Victor Turner. Okay. Now, let me ask you a question. If I, if we said, okay, actually, you know, begin with open up to the board. Sorry, because uh, the board or myself. Van Genep, G-E-N-N-E-P, he was, like, from what I understood, Dutch and German and French, so I'm not sure where he was actually born, I didn't do enough research really into, um, okay, let me ask you a question, if I said to you, okay, let's say I'm presenting a hypothetical scenario, and I say to you, um, there's a deity, and he's about to take a group of, <coughs> massive patriarchal group, lots of individuals, they're not even tribes yet, but a massive patriarchal group that don't really have a group identity yet. They have a common memory of a common ancestor who once came from a different land, and perhaps even a memory of the promise to return to that birth land. And the deity is going to miraculously take them out of servitude, and then he's going to bring them to their land where they're going to become a nation. Okay? And there are two things that they need to become a nation. What are they? What? A, a land and? A leader. A leader less so. We actually Loss. create the need for leadership. God never thought we needed leadership. Loss. Huh? Loss. Laws. Okay, what we would call today a constitution. You need a place to live and you need a, the rules by which to live in that place. What? What we? What? We could use a constitution. Yeah, because yeah, America's really. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, so let me ask you a question. If we were to say hypothetically that Didi was going to remove us from servitude, bring us to the land, and give us that constitution, where would you imagine that constitution or the giving of the law would take place? That makes the most logical sense, right? We're going to move, get to the space where we are going to be, and then we are going to get the rules, and we are going to start instituting those rules in that state. Everyone open up for one second to Shmot Perak Gimel. Oh, sorry, I'm going to ask another question. Okay, if I asked you, why did B'nai Israel, because we all know, right, why did B'nai Israel end up in the desert? What are you going to answer? There's a transition, of process. Ah, okay, so hold on. Why, if I asked, but, but if I asked you just, I woke up in the middle of the night and said, why did B'nai Israel end up in the desert? What are we going to answer? Because of the Chetam Ragleen. Right, they were supposed to go in, but then they showed that they weren't ready, that they were still fearful, etc., etc. And all of that is true, and we're not going to be right. All of that is going. We're going to maintain that today, 
they weren't ready, and so God makes them wander for 40 years, and the right the, the generation that had been in servitude to Pyro had to die out, etc., etc. Except okay. they didn't wander. There was very little wandering. Um, <laughs> most of it, they, but they had to transition. Okay, so let's open up for one second to Shmot's Perak Gimel. Okay, and look inside for one second. And God, now here Hashem is appointing Moshe for the first time. This is the, the episode by the Sneh. Hashem is appearing to Moshe. And if you remember last week, we spoke about the idea of the consecration of the sacred space, right? And then Hashem says to Moshe as follows. If you look a little bit further in, he's appointing Moshe. He's telling him that he's going to be the leader, okay? And he says as follows in Pasuk Yudet, or go back even to Pasuk Yudalit, Vayomer Moshe Ela Elohim, Miyam, Am I in the wrong paragraph? No, I'm in the right paragraph. Right? Who am I? And this was a very prolonged uh, dialogue. Pasuk Yudet, Vayomer Ki Eheyayma. I'm going to be with you. Don't worry about it. Bless you. Vizelcha Haot. Ki Anochi Shlachticha. Here's how you're going. This is the sign that I'm the one that sent you. Vahotziacha eta Ami Mitzrayim. Ta'avdun eta Elokim al Hahar Hazet. What's Hashem saying? He's bringing them all the way as far as Har Sinai. He's taking them to Har Sinai, <laughs> where they are going to Worship. serve God by this mountain. So even meaning, even if the Chetam Raglim had never happened, the plan was never take them straight into the land and give them the rules and the laws there. The plan was always somehow this new relationship that is going to develop between God and Israel, and again, we have to remember, get back into the mindset of the Israelites that are leaving Egypt. They don't have 4,000 years of history to sort of base their relationship on. They are learning about God from scratch. Hashem is introducing himself to Israel and to the world more broadly through the Makot, through Kriyat Yamsuf, and then it's going to culminate at Har Sinai. Okay, so the question that we have to think about is why the Midbar? Right? Why do we need, why are we receiving, it really feels counterintuitive. You take the people, you move them to their land, and then you teach them how to live in that land. Why do we need this space in between? Yeah. I'm just thinking, if you take a crowd of kids to the park, don't tell them what they're allowed to do. The minute they get there, they'll just ah, run excellent, around, excellent. and it'll be too late to tell them what they're allowed to do. Okay, <laughs> excellent. So we are going to, and we're going to, and we're going to see, it doesn't, it's not a flawless transition regardless. However, what I want to do is I want to talk about what all of you are intuitive, right? I want to make our shim talk about, but I want to talk about it in this sort of broader anthropological terminology. Because again, and it's sort of what we've been doing all semester, the more we understand human nature, the more we understand how humanity functions, the more we can appreciate the actual specifics when they manifest in Tanakh. So Van Ganep, and by the way, Victor Turner, I'm going to be using them sort of um, interchangeably. Van Ganep lived first, and he was the one that first developed what we're going to be talking about, these sort of rites of passage. And then Victor Turner is going to build on his work and focus on one specific right, which we're going to be mentioning in a minute. Victor uh, Genep speaks about this idea of rites of passage. What's a rite as opposed to a ritual? What's a ritual? And we're going to be talking about this more next week because we're going to see rituals when they're connected, for example, to the Mishkan, are really, really important. They don't just—they're not just motions we go through. They are enactments of the values of a given society. Okay, we're going to get back to it. But let's talk about what's a ritual versus a rite. And it doesn't have to be a religious ritual. We all have our morning rituals, right? A ritual would be done over and over again, whereas a rite would be one central okay. event. 
Okay, our morning rituals, for many of us, we wake up, we brush our teeth, we make our bed, we have our coffee, we have our morning rituals, which means it's partially, again, if it's not associated specifically with religion, or it could be, it's our routine, it's how we go through the day, it's how we structure our day, it gives form, right, to time, it creates shape out of time. That's what rituals are. A rite, like you're saying, is something different. It doesn't have to happen only one time, but a rite can be either individual rites. I can have personal time for prayer. I could do certain things that are rites that are going to enable me to transition to a different state. Okay, so they're individual rites, they're communal rites. You could have a community going together to church. You, have, you could have a community all gathering together to perform a rain dance because it's been a dry season and they need rain to fall. So the community can get together and perform a rain dance. But that's but the also most, a ritual. That's, what? That's also a rain dance. That would, I would call that also a ritual. Um, no, I think when it's associated with communal... Because it's something that... The, it's a ritual that the community... Uh, performs every time they don't have rain. Right. Uh, no, it's a right because you want it to transform something. Right. My ritual is I'm going to wake up in the morning and I'm going to do all these things because that's what I do. A right is with the expectation of some form of transformation. Okay. Okay. Rites of passage is the one that he really focuses on primarily. What's a rite of passage? What does it enable people to do? It's a transformation. Okay. To move from one phase to another, to move from one stage to another. And by the way, this can happen on the individual level. This can happen more communally. We're going to be focusing, of course, communally. Give me examples of rites of passage. Okay, right? So who said? Bar mitzvah is the one that everyone's going to jump on, right? One day, a boy cannot count for a minion. He cannot count for a mizuman. He cannot get up and lean for the entire chul. He goes through a rite of passage, and the next day, he is considered an adult by all halachic considerations, okay? Which is a crazy thing if you think about it because it's a 24-hour window after which he becomes, or not even, right? There's this transition point. The rite of passage is what the community celebrates in order for him to pass. Now, what's interesting what makes, right, Ju not Judaism distinct, but what some communities, um, and this is what actually Gennep noticed, which is fascinating, is that there are some communities where if you actually don't go through the rite of passage, you will never write today. If a boy doesn't have a bar mitzvah party, he's still going to count for a minion. No one cares. Okay? Or forget a party. If he doesn't, if he's not going to the Torah officially, if he doesn't get his aliyah, if he doesn't do all of those. In some communities that the anthropologists study, someone who does not pass, go through this rite of passage, whatever it is, is never considered to have to transition, which seems kind of wacky, right? Because if we look at an 80-year-old man and we say, no, he still belongs to children or to childhood because he never, that seems kind of crazy, but that's how important rites of passage are. Um, yes, I think a brit milah might be considered, although, yeah, a brit milah, yeah, yeah, a brit milah. not There's a, there's a certain standard. But I'm saying if you look, right, but if, if 
again, forgetting common law, what you're doing for tax purposes and medical proxy, et cetera. But if you say to someone, are they married, they're going to say no, because they never went through that rite of passage. So they're not considered fully married, which again, feels crazy, but it's not if we realize that rites of passage are really the means by which we speak to the importance <laughs> and the significance of, trans, of, of moving, of transforming from one reality to the next. By the way, it go, and it happens mostly around life cycles. Birth, right, puberty rights, which happens in all communities, again, all communities, I'm, I'm speaking in terms of all of the communities that they were studying, and death, okay? Um, by the way, an O-name, someone actually mentioned to me, is a great um, example of this, right, of this sort of rite of passage between Yes, we're going to get to it, actually, I jumped ahead, we're going to get to it. Someone, yeah. The American Indians. Yeah. A boy at a certain age had to go through a rite of passage to become a hunter. Ah, interesting. He failed. He couldn't go out hunting with the tribe. That's interesting. That's really, really yeah, interesting. Yeah, also in Africa. I'm sure. I'm sure. Right? Again, we're sort of removed from it in the Western world. That's why the anthropology is so fascinating, because it sort of clues us into things that are we have in our society, but we never understood in this context of human behaviors. Well, I Absolutely. Absolutely. Whether it's in the Catholic Church communion, whatever, there is something that takes place that now makes you more an adult. Correct. I actually, when I was when I was preparing this, and I didn't have time to look it up, but it got me thinking about that last of last few psukim in the end of the parak where Batif Tach, right, where it says so she has to go up onto the hills, right, Israel. Um, and I'm pretty sure, if I'm not, don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure Tikva Freimer Kensky, who did a tremendous amount of work on women in Tanakh, has an article where that became, she became the origins of this rite of transition for girls, right? Because mm -hmm. it was something about Tepal she was about to be killed. Why is she mourning her, right, her virginity? But that it was a rite of passage for girls in Israel that actually transitioned to this place where they were going to be married and having children, um, that she sort of associated with that rite of passage that became sort of. Um, something that was inc inculcated into Israel. Yeah. When did these people live? Um, late 1800s, Van Gennett, till the early 1900s, and Victor Turner was 1900s. I think he died in a, I have to look it up. I'm, I'm going to say somewhere between the six, oh, I wrote it down actually. Hold on. Yeah, so he was alive till 1983. So he wrote like in the 60s. Um, okay, now, Victor Turner builds on everything that Van Gennett sort of laid out for us, and he adds and he talks about these three phases. Okay, of any rite of passage. And he breaks it down to three phases, and I'm going to draw it for you in a way that you're going to see why I'm drawing it. <laughs> okay, he says there's three phases that anyone goes through that any rite of passage sort of demands in order to move from one phase to the next. There's the preliminal. There's, I'm going to write this in big because that's what we're focusing on and that's what he focuses. The liminal and the postliminal. Okay, what does liminal mean? And he spends a tremendous amount of time on this. Okay, liminal is the threshold. Liminal is the space between. Liminal is the betwixt and between. You're no longer a child, but you're not yet an adult. You are not. That's why I mentioned. I jumped ahead when I said oni, right? Someone who is not yet in the mourning period, but not, not no longer with the person that they love that they would be sitting shiva for. And so there's this liminal phase. 
and everyone goes through it in life, and everyone goes through the rites of passage, and it demands or it usually includes a number of things. Preliminal is the phase where you have to leave everything, where you separate from what you knew, where you are detaching yourself from all the old rules. So if there are rules for children in a community, in a village, you have to stop. Those rules are no longer going to apply to an adult. And so you're going to separate from those old rules. Okay, I'm skipping liminal for a second. We're going to get back to it. Post-liminal, it goes without saying, is when you're actually in the new phase of life. And it's oftentimes associated with celebration and with partying and with, with other rituals that sort of come along with it, where you're reincorporated into that new phase. Okay? Liminal is what? What's liminal? Give me adjectives to describe. Right betwixt and between is kind of? Teenager? Um, yeah, we don't even have to be, right, yes, teenager is an example. But what, what is this liminal phase? Huh? Neither here nor there. Neither here nor there, right? You're sort of in between. You're sort of there's uncertainty. So give me give me adjectives. There's uncertainty. There's an anxiety that comes with the unknown of what awaits. There's what else? Ambivalence. Who just said that? That's a perfect word, right? There's ambivalence. Yeah. Danger. By definition, implicit danger because you're neither right. You're not belonging to either group yet. Yeah. Uh, certainly hope, right? But hope mixed, I would say, with fear. That's why ambivalence is a great word because Insecurity. it's all of those things. Insecurity. Okay, excellent. By the way, I'm putting up another word. Ah, I'll say one thing for those of you who were in my Esther course last year. Right, one of the things that also happens in this liminal phase, which is really, really interesting, and he talks about the communitas, also the communities, is that all hierarchy is broken down. He says communities sometimes go through this liminal phase. You have the preliminal where everything is functioning as so, and the postliminal is where you go back to functioning as so. But for those of you who remember, if you remember, we talked about Purim as being an example of this time where it's carnival, right? Where all the hierarchy is broken down, where normally if a person acts out or, or misrespects the king, he could be killed. But during that liminal phase, all hierarchy is broken down. Everyone's allowed to act. There's no sense of who's above, who's below. There's no sense. And everyone's sort of allowed to act in the way that they want. And in that way, it creates unity among the community that usually has such a rigid hierarchy. And we said Purim is the perfect example of that. Definitely how it was acted out, let's say, in Europe, right? Where the, the silliest kid in yeshiva played the Rebbe for the day and he was you know, invoking all these halakha. It was silly, but it was a way of creating unity in this liminal phase. And when you're able to do that, then when you go back to the regular every day, there was, you know, they've done studies, less resentment of the, of the king or less resentment, whatever it was. There's also one other word, by the way, I'm going to put up in parentheses just because he also talks about it. Uh, it's less significant for our terms, but liminoid is, he talks about modern reenactments of rites of passage that aren't actually associated with a real society or with anything religious, but kind of reenactments. So the example he gives, which is a great example, is college kids who want to join a, a fraternity. Right, or a sorority. So there's this rite of passage they have to go through, even though they're not joining a real society, but there are these rites of passage that are mom initiations, correct, okay? Um, someone else I recently heard also was talking about this topic, and they talked about, I don't know if you I don't remember how many years back it was, but the um, Occupy Wall Street movement, right? They had the parallel here was the cottage cheese, Right? What was it called? The or something? Right, the cheese, cottage cheese revolution. So you have, but in both cases, what was, I'll go back because I was living in the States then, so I remember it better. Like Arab split? Um, that's a, no, that's different. That's more of a revolution, right? That's more, 
the Wall Street, the Occupy Wall Street, why it was liminal, right? Why he would call it liminoid, is it's because they're saying we're removing ourselves from society. What's going on in Wall Street? What's going on in the, you know, in the financial world? We don't identify with. It doesn't work for us or for everyone. So they 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 sat in Zuccotti Park, which is right off of Wall Street, in these tents. They weren't showering for weeks. We don't right. We don't go. We we can't agree with what is. But then they never transitioned beyond that liminal phase. They were preliminal, they were liminal, they never got to a post-liminal phase. They were never able to transition to a place where they actually created a new reality for themselves. And that's why it was kind of just it fizzled out. Okay, so liminoid is any modern manifestation of ancient rites of passage. Okay. What about the 60s? So I think I think hippie culture might be another good example of that. Yes. Right? Any any counterculture. Um, so, but it's not protest, no, there's a difference between protesting, saying something specific in society I can't identify with, but I still belong to society, versus creating a counterculture. I was going to say, they wanted, what about they wanted to create something outside of what they had. They, they, a different society, a different value. Correct. They, was, it, I would not consider that either pre-liminal or post-liminal. It was all part of making a change. They never transitioned, right? <coughs> right, right, correct. Which is oftentimes what happens, right? Right. right so who said cults? Yeah, so someone told me I need because I was I gave this class in Renana on Monday, and a woman said I need and I didn't have time to do it. She said I need to look up this new thing in America, the Burning Man. What? Anyone hear of it? So I need to. Is there? So I have to look it up, and I'll get to be I'll get back to you next week and say. Also, some sort of like liminal place they go out. I have to. Look, I don't know enough about it to speak. They go into the desert, and they have all. It's not a cult because there's no expectation of staying there permanently. It's almost like a liminal retreat, and then they come back again. I don't know enough about it, but she seemed to. Yeah. multiple times, 
But some of the symbolism and some of the, the elements within the parak, I think we haven't paid enough attention to, recognizing that Hashem intended all of this to be a movement from the preliminal to the liminal phase. Okay, so open up to Parak Yudbet in Shmot, chapter 12 in Exodus. And uh, he says as follows. Vayomer Hashem el Moshe, the El Aharon, the Eretz Mitzrayim, sorry, Hatzakal, the very beginning of the parak. Okay, now tell me why, again, we all read this and we all say, oh, the first mitzvah that we get as a people is, why? Why is that important? Why does it make a difference that we are now, yeah? The slave people's time is not their own. Okay, for sure, but we're going to see the transition is going to be, Right, even I, I think the transition is going to be from that to another form of service that we're going to talk about. But what else is meaning? Time is what? What is the you are now going to be going according to the moon, not the solar calendar? Why is that important? We are switching from Egypt, so everything went around right. It was the Correct. Solar. We are leaving everything we know and the first manifestation of re establishing or recreating order. Right, time is the most important way by which we calibrate everything. Hashem creates time in the art, in the creation story. We have time in the midbar. We're going to be counting to Shabbos with the money. Everything is about time and how we divide, right, this sort of eternal space into units of time. And so the first thing Hashem is doing is saying that your calendar is going to be different. This is preliminal. We are removing ourselves from everything we know. Okay, go down a little bit now to jump to pasuk, for example, pasuk vav. Or Pasuke. Hashem says, Setamim Zachar ben Shanai Yelachem, Min Hakrasim, Umin Haizim, Tikahu, Vayalachem, Lemishmeret, Ad Arbaasar, Yom Lachodesh Hazer, Vishakatuoto, Kolkhal, Adat Israel. I'm going to skip the two words for one second. Why are we taking the set? Everything we knew, everything we revered, everything we respected, everything that was part of the system in which we existing, we are literally stripping ourselves of reverence for those elements. And when do we actually sacrifice this animal? Bein ha'arbayim. What's bein ha'arbayim? Neither day nor night, right? There's all these halakhic questions. Can you get married? Bein ha'arbayim, which day is going to be written on the tuba? Bein ha'arbayim is the liminal point in the day, it's that liminal time, we have two of them, right, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, where we are transitioning from one day to the next. By the way, if you look at the whole mention of time in Parak Yibet, it's very strange. If I ask you any other thing in Tanakh, what time of day did it happen, you're not other than the Etzema there are a bunch of examples for obvious reasons because they're sort of public, right, so I went Avram. Other than that, you don't really have, if I say to you, when did the war against X, Y, or Z happen, we have no idea. Unless it's significant to the plot, right? I know that the sun was about to set in the war, and so Yoshua has to stop the sun. Other than that, we have no idea what time of day things <coughs> take place. And yet, with this whole episode in time, we're so cognizant of the transition of time from one day to the next. They are going to bring it in Harbayim. They are going to have in the middle of the Chatzotalayla is when God is going to come and kill the, the firstborn, and then on the next day. Time is the way we are literally marking the transitions. Yes? I don't see where it says at the beginning of chapter 12 that, that we're talking about the moon month. They, they didn't have months even with the sun in Egypt? Um, no, 
it's baseless. Chodesh hazeh lachem rosh chodesh. You know what? You're right. Maybe we won't even. I will say it like this. I'm saying this is going to be the beginning of your counting. This is month one. I'll say, but that's better. You're right, because now I'm already reading into the pshat. This is month one. Your new life is beginning now. Think about right. It's almost like the way the calendar we start with year zero from Jesus, right? It's similar to that. We are. To, to look at the moon rather than the sun. Um, because, the moon is, because the moon is the only... Uh, oh, okay, I have to... <laughs> No, you're right. I have to. You're, no, no, no. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. I have to think about that. Okay. Vinat nu al shtei ha mezuzot ve al ha mashkot 
al habatim asher Again, I'm just throwing out a hypothetical alternative, right? If God, we envision God as being up in the heavens, because we do, and we've used that metaphor numerous times in Breshit and Shemot. So if I'm going to put blood anywhere, why don't I climb up to the roof and splash some blood on the roof? Right? That makes more sense if God's flying over the houses. We're putting it on the mashkofen, on the mezuzot. Why? Because it is the threshold. And that night, what does Hashem tell us? Where do we have to remain? We have to remain inside the house. Hashem says in Pasuk, Yud Aleph, we were, uh, sorry, did I skip the Pasuk where we have to remain in the house? Hold on. Um, no, I didn't. I'm going to get to it in a second. And then, sorry, one other thing in the ancient, when we talk about eating now, because everything is processed and prepackaged, we all eat on the go. We're in the car, we're eating, we're walking from one thing to the next, we're eating. Eating was not an activity that was done on the go. The Gemara says that if you eat while you're walking, you're like a dog, right? Eating was something that you sit down and you have a meal. You don't walk while you eat. It just was unheard of. And look at what Hashem is saying. How are you going to eat? You're eating it. That's not really a meal, right? If your shoes are on and your belt are on. And just jump down again. The symbol that we most associate with Chag Pesach is what? Chag Hamatzot. Go to the next, go to the end, go to Pasuk Lamed Dalet. We're going to go back in a second, but just look. What is it? Vayisa'am, verse 34. Et bitzeko. Terem yechmatz. Mish'arotam tzurot besimlotam al shechmat. The very food that becomes the symbol, we're not, it's, it's Chag HaPesach because of what God did by jump, by skipping over the houses. The Chag HaMatzot is that we were literally walked out with this liminal, we didn't walk out with raw dough. It's edible, but it's not yet, what? It's not yet bread. And so even the food that is symbolic of that night is this transitional food that is sort of neither here nor there. So everything that happens on that night is, is this representative. All the symbols are creating this impression of this liminal phase. Go to Pasuk Chavet for one second in that same parak. And this is important because Hashem tells us. Where are you? Uh, same parak. I'm just in verse 22. What parak? Uh, 12. You bet. Thank you. Thank you. So we're marking the threshold, literally, the liminal, right, the lintels, asher basach, but atem u ad haboker. There's something important about this threshold. What is it? Can't go over it yet. Why not? Because Yitzhak Mitzrayim is not about us leaving. What is it? It's about God taking us out. If we cross the threshold before God says, and by the way, this might remind you of other things, right? There are other thresholds in Tanakh that if we don't go according to what God is trying to communicate through that threshold, it can become disastrous. When Nadav and Avi, who bring the Ishtara, cross the threshold and walk with the Ishtara, they could have made circles around the Mishkan the entire day, nothing would have happened. But they cross the threshold into that Kodesh with the Ishtara, it's fatal, okay? And so the threshold is important symbolically because it's distinguishing between areas, and in this case, it's distinguishing between us walking out on our own or God telling us when and how to leave. God takes us out of Mitzrayim, we don't leave, and that's going to set up all of the, um, everything that's going to come from, from there on. Okay, jump to, um, now go to Paragid Gimel for a second. 
And the very beginning of Perak Yud Gimel sets up the stage, the phase, this liminal phase that they're going to be in. Vayidaber Hashem Pasagalit, El Moshe Leimor, Kadesh Li Perak Yud Gimel Pasagalit. Now Pasagalit. Kadesh Li Kol Bechor Peter Kol Rechem Bivnei Yisrael. Why is that also important? A peter rechem is that, right, is the one that opens up, it's the one that's transitioning from being pregnant. By the way, something interesting which I forgot to mention, um, there are a lot of liminal phases in Tanakh, and oftentimes, and it's really, really fascinating, they're, they're, they fall with the number 40. Okay, so we have the 40 years in the Midbar, we have the 40 days of the Mabul. Anytime we are transitioning from one phase, there was another one that I'm totally forgetting now that I have. 40 days to I wasn't thinking of that. So, okay, so I think if I had to guess, right, because we always say how so all of the, right, we, I don't know if I mentioned their names, Lakoff and Johnson, who talk about metaphors. They're the cognitive linguists that talked about how we understand the world in metaphors. That very likely our ability to understand the world and transitions as 40 is because a woman is pregnant for 40 weeks. And so what's what greater liminal period, right, than, than going from nothing to life? And so the 40 might be symbolic of that, and that's why the Tanakh so often has 40 as that number, that chunk of time where something is transitioning from one reality to the next. But let's just go inside to Parakid Gimel, because we're gonna start here, it's gonna say. So there's already an articulation of you're leaving here, you are getting to here, but now let's talk about why the desert is the perfect space for this liminal transition. Why does our rite of passage, Hashem said it when he was already on the, talking to Moshe and Parakimel, why does it take place in the desert? Okay, what? certainly it's considered a dangerous place, right? We're scared of the desert because it's, you know, we don't have cell phone service and it might be scary because there might be animals we don't know how to contend with. Tack on top of that, the desert in the ancient world was also believed to be where the demons from the underworld would surface. Mot, right, who was the one, the, the sort of the demon that was, or the deity that was responsible for destruction and undermining the order of creation existed in the desert. There's a reason we throw our Seir Azazel into the desert, okay? Because in other societies, they would throw, that was where the demons were. Yeah? It doesn't belong to anybody, so there are no rules that exist. Okay, excellent. The desert is literally tabula rasa in every sense of the word. No there is influence. nothing, what? No outside influence. Okay, excellent. So let's go through one at a, no outside influences. So let's go through one at a time what this bubble is, and then we're gonna understand. And again, narratives we've all seen before, but I think it's so, so interesting to see it now in reality. We're going to have two transitions, essentially, two major, if we're thinking about the pre- and the post-liminal phase, that are going to have to happen, okay? The first is that we are going to be transitioning from a people that were dependent, that were, excuse me, servants of Paro to really serving God, and Hashem makes that very, very clear. We're going to be moving from one to the next, 
But the other thing we're going to have to also transition to is a complete and absolute dependence and awareness that our existence depends solely on God. Okay? But God, right, meaning, but our existence depends on God allowing us to survive and providing us with what we need, believe with what we need, if what? If we keep the the rules and the laws. That's what a covenant is. That's the nature of a covenant. If you do X, God will do Y. If you don't do X, game, right? All, all bets are off. So let's just go very quickly, and we're going to run through because we don't really have a lot of time left, but I just want to look through a couple of examples of where we see how the Midbar is the perfect optimal location for this rite of passage. Go to Parakidalet very quickly. And Hashem says as follows Parakidalet, we are up to Pasuk Yudalet. The Israel are literally standing. The raging waters are in front of them. The Mitzrim are behind them. There's nowhere for them to go, and they start screaming. And Hashem says as follows: Vayomer Hashem pasuk tetvav. Vayomer Yudal, excuse me. Vayomer Hashem el Moshe. Matit akelai daber al bnei Israel v'yisau v'atah haremet matcha u'v'teyat yadcha al hayam u'v'ka'ehu v'yavo Israel v'toch hayam v'yavasha. Okay, God is setting up in the Midbar all of these unbelievable realities that will never be repeated. Okay, nothing that takes place in the Midbar is ever going to be repeated, but it's almost like spiritual boot camp. In order to know how to have a relationship with God when we get there, we need to learn in the most extreme, under the most extreme circumstances. There's nothing more extreme than having to jump into raging waters with your enemy arms behind you. Okay, jump to Pasuk uh, Perak Tedbav in the next Perak. And look at this interesting juxtaposition. Perak Tetvav, Pasuk Chakbet. They had just crossed the ocean. They were all alive. Their enemies were all dead. They sang Az Yashir. Miriam sang her own variation of it, which in all likelihood might have been first, people suggest. But Pasuk Chakbet, Vayasa Moshe et Yisrael miyamsuf, Vayitu al Midbar Shor, Vayalchu shlosha yamim ba Midbar, Vilo matsumayim. Vayavo marata, Vilo yachlu lishtot mayim imara, Ki marim heim, Al kein karash mamara. Now, very valid question. Okay, and again, it's very easy for us to be critical of Dormidbar, but we have to remember the, the line between life and death in a desert is literally 24 hours. I mean, there's no, there, it's a very, very fine line. Now, listen, it's not just that Hashem sweetened the waters. It says, Sham sam lo chok umishpat v'sham nisahu. What pasuk is that? I'm in, I just read pasuk, chapei. Vayomer im shamoa tishma lekol Hashem elokecha, v'ayashar be'inav ta'aseh, v'ha'azanta lemitzvotav v'shamarta kol chukav, kol ha'machala asher samti v'mitzrayim, lo asim alecha k'tiani Hashem rokecha. What does that mean? What's the juk? And we're going to see this over and over. Every time God is going to miraculously provide them with their basic, basic needs to survive, is going to be juxtaposed with a reiteration of what? Pay to listen to the rule. You listen to me. There is no. There are no boundaries. I can take bitter waters. I can make them sweet. I'm going to make water come out of a rock. 
but it's all contingent on your loyalty and your fidelity to the covenant. And that's always going to be coming hand in hand. It's as if God is training them to understand that their physical dependence is contingent on what they're going to agree to. Okay, where's the most obvious example of this, by the way, of this whole idea of being acutely aware. Did they turn the heat up like 80 degrees? Yeah. Yeah. Now it's like 120 in here. What's going on? Um, where's the best example of Hashem sort of pounding home this idea that our dependence on him is what's going to define oh, when Moses uh, when, when, is when Moses didn't listen and okay so we're going to get to that but even before that go to Paratetzayin which one? 16 it says now listen to what they're saying, right? Again, we look at them as ungrateful. It's not about ungrateful. It's about the total panic that sets in when you are in a liminal phase. What are they saying? They're not saying we don't appreciate what Hashem did for us. They're saying that. The known evil is always preferable to the unknown. Okay? That is human nature on the individual and the national level. What they're experiencing is terrifying. So now Hashem answers him, but look at how the man is set up. Food is going to fall from the sky, which is, again, unheard of. Everything in the desert is unheard of, never to be repeated. That's why they put the little Tzimtzemet Haman away to remember this liminal phase in our past. It's not just, Hashem is not just going to sustain them. Hashem is going to sustain them. What does that mean? What's the test? If they're listening to what? What's the test? Every day a certain amount is going to fall. Every day they are to take just the prescribed amount. If they take more, it is going to get rancid. If, or spoiled or whatever, however it turns into... If they don't take enough, they won't have enough to feed their family for that day. Every night, they need to go to sleep. Nothing is left on the ground. By midday, it's gone. Every night, they need to go to sleep with not a morsel of food Mm. in the house, completely dependent that the next morning, they will wake up, and the amount of food that is necessary will be there again. It's literally, right, faith in God on steroids. It's it's faith in God to the extreme. You cannot create another phase in our history where our dependence on God was as acute and as tangible as it was in the Mifar. And that's exactly what happened. And of course, with Shabbat, the, the opposite holds true. With Shabbat, you need to collect two, knowing that the next morning it's not going to be there because Shabbat is another sort of carved out space and time. The fact that the man came from Shemayim was an absolute integral part of this liminal, okay? Because you are no longer relying on the land, you are relying totally on Hashem and your behavior with Hashem. 
Correct. And so those rules are paying with the non, how much to take and how much to, you know, you could, and then that will eventually bring you to that post-liminal belief in the strength of the Correct. And, and by the way, it's not just that it comes down from the, it's that even, no matter how much I plant and plow, and food will never grow in the desert. There is no land to be cultivated. God is bringing them to a place that that land is uncultivatable. And so we have to depend on this supernatural food that's going to fall down from the sky. And of course, again, it goes without saying it falls from the sky because it's so symbolic. We look up, right? Which brings me, I'm going to call on you in 10 seconds, but just brings me to the very next parak, right? In parak Yudzayim, what happens? Look in parak Yudzayim. This is another, right? This is another example of what you were saying in terms of the sky being significant. B'nai Yisrael, look at the first seven psukim. And again, we see here how all of the, um, the, the dynamics of the relationship are being set up. I'm in the very first pasuk in Parakidzine. And of course, again, the typical back and forth that we're familiar with, but I think we need to just sensitize ourselves to what they were going through. And they were thirsty and they begged and they cried. And of course, Hashem tells Moshe the famous story, take the stick, hit the rock, water comes gushing out, and they had enough water to drink. Without skipping a beat, the juxtaposition shows us exactly what went wrong, and it sets the stage for what our relationship with God looks like. Why? Meaning, the lack of faith that God provides the water, God provides the food, segues right into the enemy coming, and now going back to what you were saying in terms of looking up for the man, how is the only way they're able to beat the enemy? Right? Then all of a sudden they're able to beat Amalek. And so the entire transition period is about setting up these crazy hypothetical scenarios. It's almost like it actually made me think of um, when they have those team building things, when they take people to like a gibush, right? So staff, whatever, kids in, in school, and you have to stand with your eyes closed and fall back, right? And completely trust, and it's meant to build trust. That's exactly what it is. Hashem is saying to B'nai Israel, close your eyes and be back, and you have to know that I'm going to catch you. That's a terrifying thing for 600,000 people wandering around the desert. Um, wait, you had a question, sorry. Yeah. I was thinking about what you were saying about pre-liminal, liminal, post-liminal, how post-liminal everything returns back to equilibrium. In theory. It, well, because like you're, we're talking about how like this is the best place. It was sort of like crucible, and it was formed, and like this, and they had to have complete reliance on God. But then they go into the land, and like basically right away, you start reading about it. It's just like no, so not right away for like, sure. They're just like starting to worship. It's, it's almost like if you have like a right passage, but then the right. Um, or there's a learning curve, right? A rite of passage just means you're passing over into the next phase. It doesn't mean you're a fully formed adult or people, right? It means you are now in the next phase where you can actualize all of the expectations that are implicit in this phase. Just because someone goes from childhood to a puberty rite of passage doesn't mean they are now an adult who's going to do everything right in life. It means that now they are expected to behave like an adult. Now they are expected to do everything that they're meant to do. Right? There's a difference. Rite of passage doesn't mean, reincorporation doesn't mean perfection. It means reincorporation into this new reality and having to now behave in ways that are appropriate for this new reality. 
and the stage is set in this liminal period in the Midbar. But it's almost like, why do all these miracles Um, so that's a bigger question for, I mean, listen, our national story is one big learning curve, right? And sometimes we repeat the mistakes that we made in the past, and sometimes we're able to grow from them. That's the, right? The hope is we're able to grow, we, we learn the mistakes we made so that we're able to grow from them and not repeat them. We needed the, the, the miracles because we had no basis for understanding Hashem without them. Right, Hashem says to Moshe, I appeared to your avot as this personal God. I was a God of Abraham, a God of Yitzhak. Right? I never, they don't know me as a national God. They don't know what it means to worship a one, all-powerful, omniscient, omnipotent God. That's what they had to learn, and the only way to learn that was through understanding exactly the two things we're talking about. One, God is in control of all of the physical elements in the world. And two is, if you want to exist in a healthful way in this world, you need to follow the rules that God is giving you. Those are the two basic, basic components. We needed it because we didn't have that. Yeah? I'm going to say, maybe, maybe to respond to that, maybe what's unique about our concept of these kinds of faces is that, as opposed to rites of passage and other um, in other words, just we have the concept of memory. We have to always be going yes. back and reminding right. ourselves Correct. of our liminal faith. Correct. Correct. So that's what we're constantly reenacting. You see, and you start with Correct. So, so that's going to fail. Correct. So. You see, listen, I would say all cultures, I don't think we're unique in our memory, right? All cultures have memory. That's what rituals are. Rituals are, by definition, a reenactment of that one time historical event. We are mandated to remember not just what happened, we are mandated to remember the implications of that event. Remember, God took it, that's exactly it, correct, correct. Also listen, by, by nature, the fact that we're asking why did we need it, <coughs> means that it worked, right? If you think about it that way. Why did we need Hashem to prove that he was all powerful and we know that? No, we don't, we only know it because God did it, right? Meaning, we can't come 4,000 years into history and say how come they didn't know that on their own? They didn't know it because they didn't have the Tanakh. No, I was asking the opposite. Worshiping Baal. Okay, so that's a bigger question I'm going to put on the side, but it basically comes down to the idea, it's not that they didn't believe in Hashem when they were worshiping Baal. They believed in Hashem. They hadn't yet committed to the concept of monotheism, which demands soul worship, right? The revolution of monotheism wasn't just Hashem is the most powerful. It's only worship me exclusively, and that's something that took a very, very long time to catch on. Right? It doesn't mean when they were when they found all these little amulets that people were utilizing when they were when I don't know when they were doing all the revolutions in the days of Yoshiyahu and the day, they were getting rid of the Bamoth. It doesn't mean people weren't also worshiping Hashem. It just means we weren't doing it in the proper monotheistic way. Yeah. We don't have to even go far far back with Baal. The eagle has a hump. Correct. Correct. The eagle has a hump. Thank you. Yes, that's a perfect example. They weren't saying we reject God. They're saying we are not yet. Um, if you want to call it spiritual, again, none of the terminology I'm going to be using is appropriate, but religiously or spiritually mature enough to worship God in the manner which he expects. Right? That's exactly it. Okay. Um, okay, I'm just going to throw out, because we're, we're almost out of time in two seconds, but I'm going to say, you guys mentioned the, the Mishkan. You mentioned the desert. It wasn't just that it was tabula rasa in terms of I can't cultivate the earth no matter how hard I try, so I am, have to depend on God. It's that anything that exists in any other society did not exist in Mibar. You didn't have hierarchy. 
right? There was no sense of who was on top and who was on the bottom. Moshe was the leader in the sense that he led them out and he was the mouthpiece of God. He was not an authoritarian in any sense of the word. And it's only in the Midbar then, right? Again, get all the Midrashim about, oh, the Livyim didn't work and so they were the Kohanim. We know nothing about that from the Pshat. The only thing we know is that in, if you go to Pasuk um, Chachet for one second, Shmot Chachet, Chapter 28 in Shemot, Hashem says for the very first time, in the very first pasuk of that parak, Ve'ata, he's speaking to Moshe, Ha'krev elecha et ha'aron achicha ve'et banav ito, where am I? Mitoch b'nei Yisrael lecha hano li. Ha'aron nadav ve'aviu el'azar v'itamar b'nei ha'aron. This is the first time we have any semblance of hierarchy within the tribes. Yeah. Well, even as I've seen God's already setting up the Correct, correct. And we also have, again, this is not the first time I'm saying this is throughout we have hierarchy being established in terms of who's allowed it manifested and who's allowed higher up on the mountain. We also have Hashem telling him earlier on to take the Zikainim, right? Suddenly the Zikainim are granted an authority that they may have unofficially had, but now they're going to officially have. We have the Kohanim, we have the Zikainim, and then of course when Yitro comes to the and he says, Moshe, what the heck are you doing? You can't be the only one that's teaching the laws day in and day out. We have Moshe there also setting up what could write the equivalent of local, civil, and and supreme courts, essentially, right? Where Moshe has the final say because he was the authority on the legal process, but everyone sort of trickled down. And so we're literally setting things up to begin with. There are no buildings. No matter how far you walk in the Midbar, you're not going to see a building. And buildings are not just places where people live or people work. Buildings have all of the connotations that culture <laughs> infuses into them, not just temples. Right? Buildings in any culture, that's why tourists come and go see buildings, because they, they imply so much about the culture. It's not there. The only thing, the only structure we had other than the personal tent was the Mishkan, which again we spoke about last class, was this locomotive form of sacred space that came along with us whenever we invited God into it. And so again, I don't wanna I don't wanna spend too much time on this. We're gonna be talking next class. Um, we're gonna be talking about now some of the concepts that were introduced to B'nai Israel in the Midbar. And the idea then really what we're going to be focusing on in the next couple of classes is how those rules and regulations that we received in the Midbar are more than just the sort of um, the, the little details of ritual, but how ritual really, everything about ritual in terms of purity, impurity, kosher food, non-kosher food, is again a way that we as a society articulate the values of that society. So we're going to be getting to that next week, but the liminal space is where that all has to happen, where it has to be introduced. So we'll pick up next week. Have a great, great day. Oh my gosh, it went from like 10 to 10.